be reading out of Luke 15, and it's found on page uh, 1039. Going to be reading verses 11 through 30. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided the property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And then, when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he longed to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough to muff bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father's and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired hands. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this is my son who is dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older brother was in the field and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. And all that I have is mine, all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just pray that you would help us to understand these words better and take them to heart. And we just pray that you'd be putting the words in our pastor's mouth to speak and that we would have ears to hear. We thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning again. Thank you, Dave. Uh, this morning we move into Jonah chapter 2, the prodigal coming to his senses. And so if you recall from last week, Jonah was called by God to go to Nineveh. 
Jonah disobeyed and then he was disciplined by the Lord, made an example of sacrifice for the men on the ship, a model for Israel, a model for us to follow. Uh, and this morning we will see Jonah's desperation like this prodigal son had. Desperation is an interesting word in our culture, is it not? It comes with some connotations. It's a state of despair. It typically leads to extreme behavior. Other similar words are like anguish or discouragement, helplessness, or being disheartened. And despair is all over the world today, is it not? I just really wish I could kick this habit that's contrary to Scripture. Or I just really wish I could get out of this financial hole, but I just can't. Or I'm not married. I would love to find a spouse who loves Jesus like I do, who will help to sanctify me. Or I hate my job, but there's nothing else out there. Or I'm tired of being sick. I'm desperate to be healed. I'm helpless and I've given up on the political system around us and I wish the drama would just end. I'm tired of my child's decision or my spouse's lack of initiative. I'm done. I'm not making light of any of the challenges that we face in our world today, but maybe that's a sense of desperation that you've felt. I'm sure that's just a quick list that I had and a small microcosm of the things that we are faced with on a day-to-day -day basis. But this morning, Jonah shows us that God is in control of everything. Most importantly, he is in control of our hope in the midst of our desperation for salvation. And so let's look first at the most familiar piece of the story of Jonah as we finish the last verse of chapter 1, the first verse of chapter 2, after Jonah was thrown into the sea in verse, chapter 1, verse 17. It says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. So keep your finger there. Don't let the fish distract you. I want to start with that. We won't ignore it either. This book of Jonah is about Yahweh. We talked about that, right, last week, that it is about the Lord, all caps in the Old Testament. This book of Jonah is about Yahweh, where Yahweh appointed the wind, He appointed the waves, and now He appoints a fish to be used for His purposes. But what do we do about this fish? Could a man really survive in a fish for three days and three nights? How big was the fish? Could he actually have a big enough fish for this person to, Jonah, to actually be in? Was it a whale, which technically isn't a fish? It's a mammal. Well, first, this event actually did take place. Not only was Jonah a real prophet that Israel uh, followed, we saw that last week, right, from 2 Kings chapter 14. Israel knew that this was a real event. The early church, the church through history, has believed that this is a real event. But most importantly, Jesus believed that this was a real event. And we'll get to that at the end of our time this morning. This is not a figurative event. Experience. This is not a figurative episode that took place in the life of Jonah, like he was swallowed up in his despair. He was swallowed by something, let's call it like a fish, whatever it is, and God can use a fish. Okay? So in Numbers, God used a donkey to talk. Here the fish is God's instrument. So let's call this a miracle. A miracle, as one commentator suggested I was reading, is a divine act beyond human replication or explanation. We can't explain how this takes place with our finite minds. We cannot replicate what, this, uh, what happened here 
in this event. And miracles, they occur all over the Bible. The parting of the Red Sea, turning water into wine, casting out a demon, healing a blind man, or as we saw a few weeks back, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And so please don't let this fish distract you. That is not the purpose of this chapter. Let it not distract you from what God is doing. God will save Jonah from his circumstances. He will show Jonah a greater need that he has for power over his greatest challenge, salvation from his sin. The text says that the Lord appointed or the Lord ordained this fish to swallow Jonah. The word is used for appointing four times in the book of Jonah, and it is often used and is rather always points to the Lord's power to accomplish his will in the life of Jonah. Jonah didn't respond to the call of God, and so the wind and the waves, they were God's means of discipline for him. And the fish is God's means of discipline for him this week. And while Jonah is in this fish, we see the narrative shift from narrative or a story to that of poetry and praise and prayer. And Jonah acknowledges, he talks to God about his desperation in the belly of this fish with lament and with thanksgiving. And Jonah realizes at this moment that he is undone. There is nothing that he can do to save himself. He has no solution to his situation, but he needs a steady anchor. He needs a helping hand. He's at the end of himself, and the only solution to such a state of despair is God and God alone. And we see in verse two, 1 of chapter 2 that Jonah prays to his God. Yahweh is Jonah's God. Jonah hasn't been cast out because of his sin. God has not thrown him aside. Jonah's sin has caused, not caused God to ignore him and say, ah, I'm not going to listen to that guy. Let's look at the prayer in verse 2. You can follow along. We'll read through the whole part. In Jonah's prayer saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves, your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountain, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope and steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So this is a beautiful example of praying biblically. So as we submit ourselves, as we immerse ourselves in God's Word, God's Word should transform how we pray, where we pray the words and the thoughts and the theology of Scripture. And Scripture then becomes our prayer language, where Jonah is safe in this fish to express what's on his heart to God, and God listens. This is not a request of Jonah to be saved from the fish. This is a call of distress. 
It's a confession of sin. It's a call to repentance and an acknowledgement of the fact that only God can produce a miracle even in Jonah's life. And so let me remind you of the definition that I shared with you last week of what true repentance is, true change. Where true Christian repentance involves a heartfelt conviction of sin, a contrition over the offense to God, and a turning away from the sinful way of life, and also a turning towards a God-honoring way of life. And so Jonah, in this fish, he is calling out in contrition or sorrow and a conviction of his sin. In verse 2, it's, we see that his distress is as if he was in Sheol, a, a Hebrew term for hell. He acknowledges that his sin has driven him away into verse, um, excuse me, driven him away. And in verse 4, when we see that it was his own feet that caused him to be driven away that helped him flee. In the belly of the fish, like Sheol, a place of darkness, Jonah finds himself in a place where only God, or where God still remembers his people, and where God is still ruler and king and lord of everything that is taking place. Even in Jonah's refusal, his blatant refusal to obey God, he transgressed. He stepped over the line in disobedience directly to God's face. God still hears Jonah. You parents, you understand this idea of transgression. You tell the child, don't do this, and the child looks at you like, yeah, watch me, I'm going to go do it. Or don't touch that, and they end up just going to touch it. That's transgression. That's crossing over the line of what we are told not to do, blatantly. God said to go, and Jonah went the opposite direction. But God, even in Jonah's transgression, he still hears Jonah's prayer. Jonah's plight is not that he is in the fish, although we might say that it is. His plight is that the Lord is judging him. The Lord is disciplining him. And unless Jonah repents, there will be an everlasting consequence to his sin. Discipline is for us who we need to be like a child, right? Don't do that, where we get a discipline, a natural consequence sometimes for disobedience, where punishment comes in when patience runs out, where you need to be completely punished and we don't use punishment in our home when disciplining our children because we remind our children that God disciplines us he punished his son so that we would not need to be punished anymore and so Jonah's desperation even gets more vivid in verse 5 he talks about water closing in on him covering him he's drowning Jonah's sin has caused him to drown in his desperation. And it goes even deeper as the weeds and the seaweed, they wrap around his head in verse 5. And verse 6, it's not just into the mountain, but the root of the mountain. The bars are closed in upon him and closing in upon him forever. Do you see this desperation? Maybe you've been so desperate. Maybe you've been like me at the end of your rope with something that you just cry out, like, I just cannot do it. I had a little episode of that this weekend, my wife can attest to. You aren't even to the point where you can try and fix your problems. You throw your hands up. I'm done. But does the problem fix itself? No. Something still needs to be done. Look at verse 4 again. Jonah says, I shall again look upon your holy temple. And in verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remember the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. 
And God sees the providence of God over his salvation. Where God, Jonah reaches out to God who is holy. And he is above all things. Even in our sins, our voices still reach to the loving ear of our Heavenly Father who provides for us hope. And we know sin is in the world because all die. Paul says the wages of sin is death. That's your definition of knowing that sin is in the world. All die. Jonah had a sense of his desperation, expressing his feeling of being in the deepest part of the ocean, removed from the world of humanity and all hope completely out of reach because there are consequences to sin. There are consequences to his sin. And Paul says as well, when we were still weak, Christ died for us in Romans chapter 5. And what that word weak means in Romans 5 verse 6 is, is kind of an insufficient word in my mind. What this word really means, it's a, a suffering, like a debilitating illness. It doesn't sound like weakness, like I just can't lift that thing. That's something heavy. It's impossible. It's a time of desperation, which could now be because we can't even conquer our sin. That's when Jesus died for us. And for God to be just and good and righteous, He must punish sin. And it's a scary and frightening place when we realize that. And unfortunately, most people don't see it. But when we do, we can believe, we can repent, we can know that Jesus is the substitute, the righteous one, for our unrighteousness. And I think Ephesians 2 helps us see this in New Covenant eyes. I'll read it for you. Starting in Ephesians 2, verse 1, it says, and, when, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. Jonah says this in verse 6, but you, referring to God, brought my life up from the pit. Oh my Lord. My God. It's the turning point in this prayer where Jonah has an expression of praise as a recognition of God's sovereign power to save Jonah from his desperate need, salvation from his sins. Jonah is at death's door. It was a silent, slow descent as God had patience with him. Remember, as he saw last week, he went to, into the ship. He went down into the ship, further down into the ship, and took a nap. God allows us to keep sinning sometimes. I've sinned today, I'll probably sin later today, and He allows the world to keep sinning too. If you don't believe me, go turn on the news when you get home. It's a slow progression that the world participates to their grave. And he didn't destroy me yesterday, He hasn't destroyed me today, hopefully won't destroy me later today. He has patience. He, God desires, we talked about, that many would come to repentance. But when we die, if we don't believe, there will be much more severe consequences. The final punishment either goes upon Jesus or it goes upon us if we believe. 
there will be consequences for, for our sin, much more severe than the diseases that we suffer with, the heartache that we endure through, the suffering that we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. God has patience, but eventually it will run out. Many in our world today take their own life out of utter desperation. And I do not mean to minimize this. I know that there are people in this room who have had to deal with that personally in their own lives with family members. And it is horrible. And I know that it should not be the case, though. It's a big and deal and it's a heavy thing to bear. But for those who do not believe, the eternal punishment will be much more worse than the affliction that we feel on this earth beyond the grave. And so friends, our afflictions, our heartaches, our challenges in life are God, not God's way of being a cosmic, abusive father. Our suffering is often ramifications of our own sin or the sins of others against us as a natural consequence. Suffering is God's way to show us our need for a savior, that the world in which we live in is not the way that God created it to be. And we cannot save ourselves. Where God will receive glory, we cannot avoid it. And so will God's glory today be as a result of your salvation? Or will God's glory come as a result of punishment and discipline as a righteous judge? And this is where the gospel comes in. The gospel, as you've heard me say probably hundreds of times, is the good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. There can't be good news without bad news first. Jonah might be able to find a bone or something to cut himself out of the fish, but Jonah cannot save himself from his sin. He needs a Savior, just like we do. Like the prodigal, as Dave read from our scripture reading, Jonah returns. He draws closer to God than ever before by the cords of redemptive love, as one commentator said. I loved how he put that. In verse 7, Jonah acknowledges idol worship. Is it vain? It draws us away from the steadfast love of God. If you have a Jesus Storybook Bible, if you have kids, you see that the Bible calls this God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. This is Yahweh. He keeps His promises, and He will never stop keeping His promises. Where Jonah is spared from the dungeon of the fish, most importantly, he is spared from the most serious risk to his life, a life lived without a Savior in the dungeon of, gra of the grave of hell. Jonah's idols, as we saw last week, were himself, his nation, his false sense of salvation only being for the Jews. He worshipped those idols so much that he was willing to sacrifice everything for them, almost to the point of his death. And it took him in vain away from the steadfast love of God, he acknowledged. John Calvin, a theologian, he says, Man's nature is a perpetual idol factory where new widgets, new gadgets, new idols are coming out of the factory at all times. We have our idols like Jonah does, right? Our idols are whatever we worship that are other than God. What we sacrifice, excuse me, what we sacrifice for other than God. Exchanging good things even for the best thing, God himself. A great way to see what we worship, what our idols are, is to look at two things, your calendar and your bank account. What takes our time and what takes our money? 
please don't answer out loud, but even if you don't put things on your calendar or even if you pay for cash, your things that you give yourself to and your time and your resources oftentimes will show you what you worship other than God. Is it Him or is it something else or even someone else? Maybe take some time this week to reflect on and ask God the question, what do I worship other than you? Friends, we have time to repent. Nineveh, they clung to worthless idols, which is why they needed a Savior, which is why God said to Jonah, go to Nineveh. God told Jonah to go and tell them, and the sailors called out to worthless idols, we saw last week. But they repented. They offered sacrifices to the Lord in response to their mercy. And in verse 9 this morning, Jonah promises to do the same thing. He says a sacrificial worship of God because of his great mercy. The reason for this act of worship is in verse 9. It says, salvation belongs to the Lord. This is the linchpin of this entire book of Jonah. Friends, we bring nothing to the world. We are helpless. But God saves us. And so God can say to Jonah, arise, because salvation belongs to the Lord. God can say to Jonah, go, because salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah can call out because salvation belongs to the Lord. And so Cornerstone, your salvation as well belongs to the Lord. And so let's arise and go because salvation belongs to the Lord. Let's go, let's worship because salvation belongs to the Lord. The Lord is sovereign. The Lord is the source of our salvation. The Lord is also the source of salvation for Nineveh. He's a source of salvation for all of us in this room. He's a source of salvation for Royalton and Bethel and Barry and Montpelier, for presidents, for governors and neighbors and family members, for everybody. I've heard it only a couple times since I've been here. Well, Aaron, as you've tried to make a small little change, as I would call it, we've never done that before, Aaron. Well, Jonah could have said to God, uh, God, we don't go to Nineveh. But we'll see next week in the first couple verses, what does God tell Jonah again? You can look at it. You can cheat and get a sneak peek at next week. He says a second time, go to Nineveh. Just because we've never done something in a particular way doesn't mean the Bible doesn't call us to go and do it. And we can repent and we can obey. And I'm not saying you need to repent to me by saying we've never done it, but we can be open-minded to, as your elders, as myself, as we're leading this church, to try to follow to the best of our ability the Scripture. And even as elders, we make mistakes. And even as we look at things in the past as a church, we can change and we can move and follow what the Scriptures say to the best of our ability. Don't be scared to question or ask a question either of anything we do as a church. We don't know everything. But the Bible directs us, not our preferences, not Jonah's preferences, not our desires, and oftentimes we do have idols ourselves. And so God is sovereign. He is sovereign over the fish who swallowed Jonah. He is sovereign over salvation, and he is sovereign to respond to Jonah. Look at verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry ground. God puts Jonah's feet on a firm foundation. God is in control. As we close up, I have three things that I want you to remember about chapter 2 of Jonah. First, God may allow you to be in a challenging situation 
for a reason. He might be using that to show you your utter desperate need for Him, for something even more significant for your salvation. Whether your challenge is caused by your own sin or someone else or just a ramification of the fall, God can use it. C.S. Lewis, in his book called The Problem of Pain, he says this, Pain insists upon being attended to, especially when you stub your pinky toe walking around the house. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And so, friends, consider your pains, even if they feel minor to you. Maybe God is sparing more severe pain to open your eyes. And if there are pains of others around you, let's not be uncompassionate, but let's, it's a great way to point others to those, those who are suffering to the Savior that they need, who will deliver them from their greatest pains, Satan and sin and death. And so first, consider your pains. And that comes to our second point, consider your Savior. The Lord is sovereign over salvation. We've seen that. And Jonah called, or Jonah was called to go and open his mouth to Nineveh. Romans 10, Paul says this in verse 14 and 15. How then will they call on him and whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Jonah's desperate situation was not just for his salvation, but the world around him, the world around us, is dying. And God wanted Jonah to go to Nineveh. Jonah needed a heart change of repentance. And he got some in some challenging circumstances. And so as you consider your Savior, don't just personally bask in the relief of distress, although that is a great thing to do and respond to God's grace. But we can respond like the sailors did in worship. We can respond like Jonah here too in our text this morning in prayer. We can respond in sacrifice and obedience. Last week we saw Jonah get thrown over for the sake of the sailors. And next week we'll we see Jonah respond and we can respond as well by going like Jonah did to Nineveh. And as the chapter closed, God appoints the fish again as an instrument of Jonah's salvation, where Jonah will be the instrument of the salvation for Nineveh, like he was for the sailors. And it's a great privilege to be an instrument of God for salvation, where the wind and the waves and now this fish have responded. Jonah will have an opportunity next week, as we have an opportunity every day, with someone else to be an instrument for their salvation. But salvation belongs to the Lord. And as He uses men and women like you and me, we get to be His instruments to save others. And we, friends, have the greatest news in all the world. And it's unloving to not share it with others. We help others all the time, right? We stack wood. We help paint houses. We go get groceries if people are sick. We pick people up from the Dartmouth coach. We teach people how to garden. We can tend to miss, though, the greatest way we can help others. The greatest way is to share with them their need for a Savior and also share with them the Savior. 
as we consider how we serve this community in which we live around us, we want to do so in a way that allows us to have gospel conversations. It's great to have a soup kitchen. It's great to help people randomly that need help. But it is, should be and hopefully is for the sake of preaching the gospel to people who are lost and dying in their sins. And when the Lord speaks, things happen, like the Lord appointed the fish to swallow Jonah, or the Lord said to the fish to spit him up onto the dry ground, where creation happened when God said for it to come into existence. Romans 4, which was in our Bible reading this morning, talks about how salvation is accomplished by God's call of Abraham and giving life to the dead. And when God calls things to happen, friends, they happen. And so consider your circumstances, consider your Savior, and third, consider the death and resurrection of Jesus. You can turn to Matthew 12 if you want to follow along. But Jesus believed this event was a true, real event with real people, and it pointed to something much more significant, His death and His subsequent resurrection. Matthew 12, verse 38 to 41, if you want to follow along. Jesus is talking with some scribes, and then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. We've seen signs, right, in the Gospel of John we studied. But he answered that an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Some theologians believe that Jonah actually died and then rose in this fish. I'm not entirely sure. But what I do know from this passage this morning is that Jonah's actions, and Jesus believed it, point to what Jesus will do and what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection for us. Jesus believed it. Do we? A couple points. Verse 2, Jonah called out to God, similar to Jesus calling out from the, co the cross, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But God didn't answer Jesus on the cross. But we who believe, because God didn't answer Jesus, God will answer and listen to us when we call out. Verse 3, Jonah says he was cast into the deep to die while eventually he was spared from death. But Jesus was not spared from death. He died in our place on the cross for our sins. Jesus, the righteous one for the unrighteous ones, you and I, so that we might become the righteous ones by believing. Verse 4, Jonas was said he was driven away by his sin. Where Jesus was taken to the cross because of our sin to die. And as we saw in John chapter 10, for those who believe in John 10, he will never cast out, even as we stumble in our sin. Verse 5, Jonas' sin was about to take his life. And sin will take all lives. We saw that already. But Jesus allowed his life to be taken, though innocent, so those who would believe will receive an abundant life, a life that can never be taken away from us, an eternal life. 
Verse 7, God is in his temple. Jonah wants to enter in in verse 4. And Jesus, at the moment he died, if you're familiar with the story from Matthew, the curtain of the temple was split in two so that we who believe can enter in and have communion and fellowship with God ourselves. Verse 8, the steadfast love of God is our hope. And we know God loved his beloved son because he was well pleased with him. We see in the Gospel of Luke as it records Jesus' baptism. But for those who believe in Jesus, God now looks upon you and I with the same words, my beloved son, my beloved daughter, in whom I'm well pleased because of his steadfast love. And finally, verse 9, Jonah says that he will pay his vow. Jonah, Jesus didn't need to pay anything because he was perfect without sin. And so like Jonah, we can bring sacrifices in response to the great gift of salvation that we have received from God, great mercy and love towards us. And we do that in different ways with tithes and offering and service and worship because it's all for God in response to what he has done for us. Jonah needed a savior. We need a savior. The world around us needs a savior. And that's why God called uh, Jonah to go. That's why God calls us to go because salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation comes through believing in the life, ministry, and death and resurrection of Jesus on our behalf. Jonah was in some sense risen from the fish pointing to Jesus' resurrection, which again secures our salvation. Next week, after service, we're going to celebrate baptisms. It's new life through Christ, through baptism, where we see and we remember Jesus' death being buried, going under the water, and his resurrection coming out of the water, signifying the newness of life that we get to participate in. Jonah's episode in the first chapter set the stage, this first couple chapters sets the stage for next week. Sometimes it feels easier to trust God, though, when we are on dry ground, doesn't it? Where life is tied up in a nice bow, when our lives are together. But sometimes it's better to trust God from the belly of the fish. When the waters are crashing upon us, when we feel like we're drowning. And as I look out in this room, I know some of the stories in here. And I know it feels sometimes like we're drowning. But we don't need to be on dry ground for God to tell us the, and the world that we need a Savior. It's easier for sure, but we can go even in our own desperation and share the gospel. We can show the world that we are just as desperate as they are for a Savior. And it's a great way to share and to empathize with them and to relate with them as we proclaim the gospel. Remember C.S. Lewis, suffering is God's megaphone to show our need for a Savior. And sometimes I feel like we in the American church are on dry ground. But what will we do when we are in the belly of the fish? Will we consider our circumstances? Will we consider our Savior? Will we consider His death and resurrection for us? So Cornerstone, we get to do this together. We get to encourage and remind each other and help each other consider the gospel the good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and then we get to go in response to believing it. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we thank you for the great mercy 
that you gave to Jonah. And we thank you for the great mercy that you give to us. As we saw when we were in John chapter 1, that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth are through Jesus Christ. And we see in there as well, the grace upon grace, like the waves continuing to flow over us. And oftentimes, we feel like we can be drowning through the waves crashing over us with water. But God, we're reminded that your mercy never comes to an end. And there's no midst of trouble. There's no midst of anguish. There's no midst amount of discouragement and need that your mercy cannot satisfy. And so, God, we thank you that you are abundant and infinite in mercy. And we look forward to being delivered ultimately from this body of death and this world in which we live in as we are with you forever. But we're not there yet. And so God, as we reflect on your grace through the cross and your son's resurrection, we want to worship you here. We want to give of our sacrifices and worship to you. And we thank you.